So we've been working our sermon series through the book of Acts. Today we're in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Um, one of the reasons Christianity succeeded over the dozens of other religions in the ancient world was simply Christians, um, they suffered better and they died better than anybody else. Uh, you read the stories of the martyrs, they died with joy, they died singing, they died forgiving their executioners, they're forgiving their enemies. There's this incredible phrase that comes down to us from church history I think it's like late second, early third century uh, from Tertullian in uh, one of the early church fathers. And he said, forgive my Latin, my Latin's not very good, semenes sanguis Christianorum, which means, you know, the blood of Christians is seed, which means that like the more you kill us, the faster we grow, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, you know, when you hear that, um, you wonder, where do they get that kind of heroism? Where do they get that? How are they able to face suffering in that way? Because however they did it, we could use a whole lot more of that. I mean, it's been observed by a number of people that the secular, you know, Western culture that we live in right now is terrible at preparing people to suffer well. We just, we're, we're, we do not suffer well. We have, we have a population that does not ho- know how to suffer well. You could say maybe part of that is because we've lived a fairly cushy and affluent life. You know, you go back to medieval Europe, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. It's crazy, the statistics. One out of every four infants died before their first birthday. And then one out of every two children after that died before they reached the age of 10. Like, they, they buried half of their children when they were still little. And yet, when you, when you read the, the journals, the diaries of those people, um, you know that they took suffering in far better stride than we do, even though they live a far, lived a far more difficult life. As I said, Acts 6 and 7 is the passage today. It is the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He is a man who we read a week ago was selected to care for the poor and the outcast. He was one of the earliest, we think, uh, uh, proto-deacons. And yet here he is, he's arrested, he's brought before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And what I don't want to do, talking on a passage like this that focuses on religious persecution, I don't like, want to create a false equivalence and say, um, oh, oh, we're persecuted like this because we're not, or, or try to make an equivalency with like, oh, I've got a really bad job situation where my boss is, you know, doesn't like my faith, or I have family members that really are resistant to my faith. Like, I, I don't want to trivialize, quite frankly, the passage and trivialize Christian suffering in the world today in that way. At the same time, I got to think that there is, you know, a word of encouragement for us here in even our smaller, you know, lowercase level S sufferings in this life. And so we're, that's what we're going to um, talk about. Acts 6, beginning in verse, verse 8, carrying through 15. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. But opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, well, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. 
All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We skip ahead to chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard basically the speech that he gives, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus, who we'll read about next week. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he fell on his knees, And cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lots of echoes of Jesus' death with Stephen's death. I don't know if you picked up on that, but you know, here we have Stephen. He's brought before the Supreme Court uh, under these trumped-up charges about him speaking against the temple. You know, uh, he said that they would destroy the temple, and, and those were the, some of the same things that the witnesses you know, charged Jesus with doing. Um, now, normally, when someone is, is barraged with by false accusations, um, the defendant is going to reply you know, along the lines of, well, I, I, I didn't say that, or I didn't do that, or I have an alibi, or these charges are bogus. But Jesus, if you remember, he was silent in the face of his, of his acu- accusers. Uh, he was no ordinary defendant. Stephen isn't silent, but he's no ordinary defendant either. So the part I left out was a very lengthy chapter in chapter 7 of the speech that he gives where he traces Israel's history through Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. It's like basically a 15-minute TED talk that he gives through Israel's history, and he tries to basically make the point that um, God's people are just They have been obstinate, that every time God raised up a new leader for Israel, the people rejected him. They rejected what the the Holy Spirit was doing in this new leader. And then in verse verse 51, uh, the speech reaches a a crescendo, and he brings an indictment against the people. He says, says, basically, you stiff-necked people, which that metaphor is like maybe thinking about a horse with a stiff neck that is not responding to the reins as they turn him from here to there. Uh, Your heart uh, and ears are still uncircumcised, so that was the mark of spiritual deadness. You're just like your ancestors. You're just like your fathers. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit, which, among other things, is a subtle reminder that the Holy Spirit didn't just appear in Acts chapter 2, that he was active all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and so here he is. He's on trial for his life. Um, but verse 15 says his face was like the face of, of an angel. He's not snarling in anger as he delivers this indictment like one of Israel's prophets. He's not snarling with anger, and he's not trembling with cowardice. He looked and spoke like someone with no personal animosity or hatred, which is simply not the way that you and I look or speak when we're falsely accused, is it? Not at all. I mean, the last false accusation that I could remember— I'm sure there was one more recent than that, but it was a speeding or a traffic violation ticket that I got in Garden City, Idaho, when I made a U-turn in front of a police officer. And I thought that was, 
it was perfectly reasonable for me to U-turn in the situation. And so I, I tried to appeal it. I went to court. I was arguing with the, um, the, the, the attorney, and she's like, I'm sorry, sir, but we can't, you can't plea bargain this any lower because I think the charge was you know, $75. This is the lowest ticket that we, that we can give you. And it, that wasn't satisfactory to me because I wasn't guilty. I was falsely accused. But my face did not look like the face of an angel at that moment. <laughs> But here, Stephen is such a good reminder, isn't he, that this, you can love without agreeing with someone, and you can disagree without hating them, right? I mean, even, even in religious persecution, you can disagree without hating them. Let's talk about that topic for a moment. Religious persecution. I don't buy the belief that Americans, that Christians are a persecuted minority in America. Sometimes you hear that martyr language used uh, among Christians, and, and I don't know about you, but that bothers me because, I mean, yeah, we have some difficulties, but we don't suffer anywhere like our brothers and sisters, sisters do throughout the world. Um, no, we're not persecuted in that sense. I guess if, you, if I'm trying to listen to them charitably, what I understand them to really be meaning is that, yes, sometimes making a stand and living according to your, your convictions, your conscience, can do you professional harm. Sometimes it can do damage to your professional status, your professional gain. Um, you, you can look bad in the eyes of other people. Um, and there's going to be plenty of opportunities, I'd assume, um, in life for us to compromise our convictions and compromise our consciences. How do we live with complete integrity when, we are, when we're under pressure, when we're under serious pressure? And here's one idea. This book, uh, it's on my reading list right now. It is Faithful Disobedience. Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. It's written by Pastor Wang Yi. And, you know, China is officially atheistic, right? So uh, they don't, as a government, believe in God, but they recognize that people will believe in God. And so the way that they try to keep those people in check is by creating a state church. There is a, a nationalized church that if you're going to believe like, you know, in Jesus, you have to be part of this, this created state church. And what you have is this massive movement of uh, underground house church uh, activities in China where brothers and sisters basically say, we're not going to be nationalized. We, we're not going to be part of a nationalistic church. And this is a series of essays that he wrote from prison and other Chinese leaders, uh, house church leaders, wrote from um, prison about like how they view church-state relations, which is pretty significant for us today in America, and just how do they view uh, their civil disobedience. And what stands out to me, um, based on the excerpts that I've read from the book, is just these these brothers and sisters in China, they believe, they really, really, really believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus is king, who lays sole claim to their allegiance. And they're like, look, Caesar's focus was not whether you believed in Jesus. They often said, the Caesar and the Roman Empire said, we don't care if you believe in Jesus. What they cared about is if you believe that Jesus is king, he's lord. And, and they just... What I admire is how they refuse to compromise, to do anything that would compromise their commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So here's one excerpt that stood out from me 
Uh, Wang Yi is being interrogated by a, a policeman. And instead of, as he's being grilled by this interrogator, he doesn't say, well, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I have an alibi. Um, what he says is this. I am telling you about a power that will last forever. But this power does not demand lands or swords or all the other authority in this day. On the contrary, it is willing to humble itself and submit to the swords and authorities on earth. If you want to use earthly power today to oppress the eternal power, this scripture has already been revealed the end. Um, History is Christ written large. It's not Xi Jinping's written large. That's what they said, is, you know, Christ is in charge of history. And if you want to squash us, that's fine. But there will be a final reckoning. And that's what he's saying back, back to the power. Um, there's another great quote, at least I think is a great quote, where he's writing and he says, you know, test yourself to see if you are crazy for the gospel. Like when you're threatened with death for the gospel, yeah, you find out for whom you really live. When faced with the risk of job loss, you know for whom you really work. When you may lose fortune and position for the sake of the gospel, you find out whether you're crazy for money or crazy for the gospel. That may see, sound like maybe overly simplistic, but I don't think it is. I think it, that's really applicable to us. Like when the, chi- when the cards are on the table, the chips are there, when it's, when it's all coming down, is it about money? Is it about comfort? Is it about the gospel? It applies here today. All right, let's move on and look at the death of Stephen, the death he dies, and the vision he sees. I do not like snow. I love snowball fights. Anybody like, (laughs) you see the pictures from Flagstaff right now? I mean, they they got like 11 feet of snow up there. I can't imagine anybody living in Flagstaff. Um, When we left Boise, I said, I never want to shovel my driveway for the rest of my life. And and that's kind of a a pledge that I have made. So I'm not a snow person, but I do like snowball fights. How many of you have ever been in one of those large, like, free-for-alls where everybody is, anybody? Okay, a few. Why why do pastors ask questions in sermons and make you raise your hand? Like, that that doesn't work. Um, Snowball fights are fun so long as you don't pack the snow too tight right? When you don't pack the snow too tight, or when you, your snowballs don't have a lot of debris in the middle of it. But w- when that happens, it hurts. It hurts. Where am I going with this? They didn't hit him with snow. They hit him with jagged rocks. You know, the Bible is written in such a way not to sensationalize suffering. So you, you never get this, like, grotesque picture of Jesus on the cross, even though the cross was absolutely grotesque. And here, you don't get a grotesque picture of Stephen uh, being pelted with... Can you imagine what it is to watch a human being die by having rocks thud against, against their head, against their, their, their bodies? It's just like thud, thud, thud. The groaning that would take place. I mean, it, it's, he, dies, he dies terribly. And at that very moment, as Stephen is being you know, pelted with stones, hundreds of stones, God gives him a vision, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what's significant about him standing? Well, in the Apostles' Creed, 
we affirm that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's the Christian doctrine of the session of Christ, that when he made atonement for our sins, when it was all complete, he sat down essentially on the throne of heaven like a king, like, like the, a monarch. Um, but enter two of the great church fathers, Augustine and Ambrose, and they said, why is it that Jesus is standing at the death of Stephen? And Augustine makes this short and classic statement, and it's this, judges sit and advocates stand. For Jesus is both our judge and our advocate. He is seated and he is standing, and he rises to advocate for Stephen as he was condemned by the people of Israel. It's like he's standing because Christ is defending him. He's standing because he was falsely accused, he was shamed, he was shouted down, he was brutally murdered, and yet at that moment, at that moment he sees that Jesus has his back. He's with him. Ambrose uh, of Milan has the same general idea. He writes that Jesus was standing as his advocate. He was standing as though anxious that he might help his athlete Stephen in his conflict. He was standing as though ready to crown his martyr. And then later on, Ambrose, in one of his sermons, says, and let him be standing for you. I don't know. Rarely, rarely when our lives are just replete with suffering, when our lives are just going down the tubes, when is the Titanic sinking, do you ever hear from a Christian that are like, yeah, I, I, I just see Jesus standing for me right now. We don't, we don't say that. We don't have that vision, do we? Jesus is standing for me right now. Nobody on earth would stand for Stephen when he was on trial. He stood alone. Do you know what God is showing him by giving Stephen this vision? Like God is telling him that the earthly courtroom isn't anywhere as real as the heavenly courtroom is, that the earthly one is temporary, the heavenly one is forever, and the heavenly one is more real than the earthly one. He's saying that like if you have an advocate standing for you in heaven, it doesn't matter what, it, what anybody else says down here on earth. If you have an advocate who stands for you down here, then nothing else matters, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how, how false, how cruel, how heartless it is. And it's so important um, for us to believe and to believe more when we're afraid down here on earth. Okay, moving on. Tennessee Williams, you know, the famous playwright, he wrote this essay Uh, You may have read it before. It's called The Catastrophe of Success. And he talks about when he started out, he was this poor, starving playwright. He was living in a roach-infested closet in New York City, trying to write a play that, you know, he just wanted to put food on the table, and and he'd like to be famous, too. Um, And it was in that condition of of scarcity, of, of struggle, that he ends up writing this masterful play called The Glass Menagerie. Um, It was a Broadway hit, and at that moment, you know, success comes, he's, he's a celebrity, everything changes, changes for him. And all of a sudden, um, Tennessee Williams you know, goes from the, the, the gutter to the penthouse, and he's got servants that are waiting on him. He's got a huge house, and, and he can eat whatever he wants, he can eat when, whenever he wants, he has all the money and fame that he ever dreamed of. And then he writes in this essay about basically what happened is he, he lost something in the process. He realized that with success came, he, he basically lost the ability to create. He lost his imagination. Um, and I think that's how a lot of you artists out there, how you find your creative, your creative juices. It's like you need the chronic pressure of, ah, you need that, the, the chronic low-grade anxiety and that kind of pressure 
the, the scarcity of the moment to fuel your own creativity. The, the internal angst and misery is actually what makes it possible for us to create and do something like truly beautiful. So if you know the story, what did Tennessee Williams do to get his groove back on? Um, he ends up moving to a slum in Mexico, and he takes away every luxury out of his life, and he basically recreates the conditions of scarcity and poverty through which he wrote The Glass Menagerie. And from you know, that place of uh, nothing, he writes his second play, which was A Streetcar Named Desire. And that goes on to, I think, even be, you know, more famous and, and greater than the Glass Menagerie. And, you know, we, we learned something here that, like, there's a reason why the church is going gangbusters in China right now. It's because when there's some temperature on you, um, usually that's when the Holy Spirit works the best in us, right? You know, the church has always been at her best when she didn't have, like, the worldly power or tons of wealth and creature comfort. She's always best under pressure. But the Holy Spirit always seems to create through us the best when we're under pressure, when things are not easy, when we lack resources, when it's rough. And, you know, selfishly, I think that uh, church plants in that respect have a leg up on the, the super rich, the super everything churches because... We don't have a lot to fall back on. As I said earlier, like a few weeks ago, we're not amenitized that people come in and they're like, oh, I want this amenity and that amenity. We don't have hardly any amenities. Um, and that's good. I mean, hopefully it means that we're the plucky underdog that relies upon Jesus to create something beautiful. The same applies to us on the personal level. Like if, if we want to become a person that is our true self, that is radically outward-facing, that is radically loving and generous, that, is, um, that has tremendous courage in the face of pressure, that is generous to our neighbors, that stands up for social justice. I mean, how are we ever going to become that? How are we ever going to become people of great faith? It won't be with a silver spoon in our mouths. It's not going to be in the moments of comfort. Jer- Johnny Erickson taught us that it's so well. She says, you know, sometimes God allows what he hates— in order to accomplish what he loves. And what he really loves is to make us more like Jesus. What he really loves is Christ-likeness. That's what he's after. And there's really no other way. Um, There's no other way to get there. It's why you hear people who um, go through a really, really bad patch in life and are struggling with something medical or struggling with with, um, family situation, and and they finally get through it, and, and they say, you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't trade it for anything else because God, he met me there and he made me more like Jesus. In the moment, it's not easy to recognize. Um, Think what what was going through the minds of these Christians as they carried the blood-soaked body of Stephen, you know, out of the Sanhedrin and took his battered body and carried it to his burial. I mean, they had to feel like, like, why? Why? What a waste. This was our, one of our best men. Like, why, God? Why would, if he's going to die, why does he have to die like this so horribly? And then, as we go on to chapter 8, realize the story seems to get worse because then this wider persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And many of the Christians, they had to flee to different parts of the empire. And so some go north to Samaria and others go um, to the coastlands and head up to, like, Cyprus. And, and all of a sudden, they're free, fleeing from their lives and then every new place they go to, what happens? 
the gospel spreads. New life is born. Um, we'll read it in chapter 8. You know, Philip goes to Samaria, and whew, somebody believes. Whole people group believes. You know. What Stephen's death teaches us, among other things, is simply that there is no catastrophe that God cannot redeem. There is absolutely no horrible catastrophe. Like, nothing in God's economy is wasted for his people, not a single thing. That he is the God of redemption who does and will redeem even the worst situations. And what I would recommend to you is if, you know, you're just right now kind of nodding your head like, yeah, ask God to speak that to your heart. Like, ask him to really speak that truth to your heart, that there is no catastrophe that the God of redemption cannot redeem. Okay, finally, did you catch how Stephen dies? He dies with two prayers in his lips. The first, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which recalls the dying words of Jesus on the cross, where he says, you know, Father, receive my spirit. And then the second one he prays is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which recalls Jesus' earlier prayer for the forgiveness of those who crucified him. Like this man at his death, he has been formed into the image of Christ. He looks like Jesus in his life under trial, and he looks like Jesus in his death. He he embodies Jesus' love even for his enemies. He dies like Jesus. How did that happen? Why did that happen? We're tempted to think that the reason that happened is because the moment prior he saw a vision of Jesus standing in heaven. Um, Maybe, but I doubt that that's the reason. The disciples, they saw Jesus for three straight years. And when somebody double-crossed them, uh, they asked God to pour fire down from heaven to consume villages. I don't think it's because they saw Jesus. I think it's because they had a a piece of Jesus that was given to him. Um, They had the breath of Jesus that was poured into them. He had the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing that keeps showing up again and again through the book of Acts, is like what we really need in the moment is not better plans. We just need more of the Holy Spirit. We need the gift of God himself so the Spirit will make us live like Jesus and the Spirit will make us suffer like Jesus and the Spirit will make us you know, die like Jesus. Like whatever it is that we're facing today. And it could be that we're bearing too much, that we have too great a weight on our shoulders. What we need is just simply the love of God to be poured on our, out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Christian, think on this. This was an old uh, English pastor who said these words, and I'll leave them with you. Think on this. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of that love that is from everlasting to everlasting, of that love that brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to glory. Um, Whatever it is that you're facing today, pray for more of the Spirit's breath inside of you. And, you know, that's what we'll do right now. I just want to give you a moment. We don't normally do this after sermons, but I just want to give you a moment to, uh, to pray however you wish, but particularly to pray that the Spirit would be given to us in greater abundance. So let's do that right now.